0: Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Ella Henry and Phil O'Reilly with me today. By the way, oh, here's a response. Uh, Wallace, your guests today are my favourites. Highly entertaining, measured and insightful in both whip-smart responses there, yeah, that's a lovely Christmas message, isn't it? Golly gosh, uh, thank you. And by the way, Camp Lamp all the way. Very good, we'll discuss that later. First up, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and Agriculture Minister Damien O'Connor fronted up today and promised farmers that it will charge agricultural emissions at the lowest price possible and will not regularly alter the prices to give farmers Certainty. Other key points of the compromise include a five year price pathway established from 2025, providing certainty out to 2030, agreement to recognise scientifically robust on farm sequestration in the ETS, and it increases what types of trees and vegetation on farms can be used to offset emissions. Ten partners of the Heewaka Ekenaua Group, including Dairy NZ, the Meat Industry and Horticulture NZ. They're on board with it. With us is environmental scientist Troy Baston, who is an honorary professor at the University of Auckland School of Environment. Uh, Troy, kia ora. You also, you've done work scoping the development of on-farm calculators for greenhouse emissions, I understand. Kia ora,
1: Troy. Kia ora, Wallace. Thanks for having me on.
0: Actually, on that, can I just ask a question, a bit of a side note here. In terms of actually calculating on-farm greenhouse gas emissions, farming these days must be really highly technical.
1: Well, it will be if farmers actually start having to take more and more account of their emissions. Um, That doesn't mean, though, that anything will actually be measured for some of these emissions on every farm. It just wouldn't really be feasible for methane, and particularly for nitrous oxide, to do that cost-effectively.
0: How come? Tell us about that.
1: Well, in order to do that, you need to measure these greenhouse gases, and it's possible to do that on some farms. But imagine putting a dome over the farm to measure it. Uh, So, for example, the way they develop the national inventory is animals go out and get put into a, a little trailer or box, measure the methane emissions from each animal, and then scale up by the number of animals to get to the methane emissions for the whole country using some understanding of what different animals are doing, what they're eating, uh, so on and so forth. So that's how this all works. Now Uh on a farm, we'd want to take account of, well, how many animals are there? What What are they eating? And that's sort of how the models would work. And farmers will increasingly have to keep track of all this stuff.
0: Okay, so pretty significant stuff here. Hey, Troy, um, the government is now going to set the levy price as low as possible. A bit of a compromise. Sectors are on board. Fed farmers, not so. But anyway, will emissions be curbed with that?
1: Well, it remains to be seen. I think on net it's a good step. Um, and you hear mostly agreement today. So in a way, I think the first thing to say is this is a bit like the opposite of the three waters debacle, where you've got an obvious problem, potentially obvious solution, and the question is, can we actually find a way forward? What really matters is that farmers can actually innovate and get emissions down, particularly for dairy farming. Um, Competitively for sheep and beef will be more difficult. Um, That May move more to sort of carbon farming as an option, and it does open up the possibility of getting some credit for sequestration on farms. That should keep um, the profit and loss statement relatively healthier going forward. It also provides some certainty on what the prices are likely to be and how that's going to work, and puts the money into supporting innovation rather than just expecting okay. that cost. It, the key thing is it costs coming on farmers um, won't necessarily get the emissions down, innovation will get the emissions down. Putting costs on people that can't reduce their emissions hurts, and it hurts particularly hard on Māori land.
0: Interesting, yeah, innovations will get the costs down. Interesting stuff there, um, Professor Henry. Uh, let's bring you in.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree too that often, particularly on <clears throat> Māori um You know, community or communally owned land, Um, innovation is quite hard because there's multiple owners. um, So that can be problematic and, you know, lower investment potential. Um, But I also feel like this compromise on the part of the government for the farming community and the whole farming sector, whilst it's good for our economy, presumably, I don't think it's really addressing the underlying problem, which is that maybe by 2050 humanity will be extinct. If we haven't figured out how to lower the things that we need to lower and change the things we need to change and maybe, you know, move to a vegetable diet instead of an animal one, it, the, the crisis isn't going away. And by simply putting decisions further back down the track, I don't know that we are necessarily protecting the future for our grandchildren. How do
0: you respond to that drawing?
1: Well, I think there's a couple things. First of all, in the big scheme of climate change, agricultural emissions are not the biggest problem. We're now in a world where solar is cheaper than coal for electricity. And so there's some things that are really moving forward. Um, when we think about dietary shifts, yes, that is going to matter. And that's one of the reasons why New Zealand needs to start thinking in these directions. Other things in this, in terms of keeping it on to the, t- onto the time frame, this actually does that. It has a transition at the beginning. It's The process can't quite meet the 2025 timeframe. I think that makes sense. It has more transitions at the end as emissions pricing will start to come in more tightly at the back end of this. Um, Ultimately, that's also about keeping New Zealand products in the markets in places like the EU, which are increasingly going to be um, insistent. That uh, we meet the regulations with yeah, our. Actually, just uh, on LPS's that, policies.
0: just on that. Before we go to Phil, I, 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 I was actually reading that Tesco, the biggest buyer of New Zealand products in Britain, they want our products to be sustainable. They want to reach net zero across their whole supply chain uh, in a couple of decades. So that's pretty significant for us.
1: Absolutely. Uh, best way to think about that, I think, is that we want to be in the high value locations in the future. And so trying to figure out how to capture that money and use it to reduce our emissions is probably also the way forward.
3: Phil? Yeah, so I'm with Troy on this. Um, We will be, in terms of leadership, I think, I stand to be corrected, Troy, but I think we'll be the first country in the world to price methane uh, at a national level. That's a big step forward. And it's really about making sure we maintain openness to markets, it's not, the Prime Minister keeps on saying it's about getting more value for what we sell, no it's not, it's about maintaining openness, it's about maintaining those open markets, because otherwise the usual protectionist suspects will use that as an excuse to stop market access the other important thing about these announcements today is they put more power on the hands of farmers, that's really important in my view, if you say to a farmer look you've now got control of your carbon budget you can put more cows on but it's going to cost you you can take cows off and plant trees, it's going to cost you less, that it really speaks to farmers I think and the one thing that I think you know counterfactually maybe is, is maybe underdone here is I think there's an argument for putting the price of methane up quite a lot actually because it will engender much faster action in terms of R&D so there's a counterfactual to that but the government just announced at the Field Days thing a few weeks ago, a big new investment around methane mitigation of $50 million in, in from government, matching 50 from the private sector over a period of years, to really do a moonshot moment, which is what I've been talking to MPI about, a moonshot moment around trying to get methane inhibition technology right. And then, if, once that gets available, then you whack the price of methane up hugely. So you really make sure farmers are going to use that technology. Oh, I so get my to. sense is this, is this is on the right track. The downside is maybe that lower price doesn't get farmers acting quickly enough but you know all in all i'd say gee it's a pretty good solution the government's come up with here in particular giving that control to the farmer who can make their own choices well it's
0: back to troy being innovation as the actual driver troy
1: yeah so i think this is exactly right what we're generally talking about here it's all headed in the same direction it's hard to define innovation yet got to have it getting moving, got to, have, got to have the prices ramping up over time without eliminating the process and, or the whole the, issue, the whole process of actually farming in the short run. And that's actually built into the Paris Agreement. Greenhouse gas emissions in the short run or overall are not supposed to come out of food production, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be shifting food production towards um, more sustainable options.
0: Right. Very good. Hey, Troy, Kiota, Thanks very much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, Troy Basin, he's an honorary professor at the University of Auckland uh, School of Environment and an affiliate with uh, Motu Economic and Public Policy Research. 17 past four, you're on the panel on NZ National, Ella Henry and Phil O'Reilly with me today. Now, some principals have spoken out about a quite, unquote, rapidly declining interest in principalship as pay negotiations, negotiations halt for the holiday season. The first offer for the collective agreement for primary and area school principals was a six grand increase over two years. The second was a four grand rise plus three percent on the base salary. Then you've got a seven hundred and fifty dollar lump sum payment, but it's not just the pay, apparently the nature of the job has changed, bombarded with admin staffing requirements, health and safety. So principals want a greater recognition of the workload with us as Western Bay Plenty's Principal Association president Suzanne Billington. welcome Suzanne Kia ora. Well, you've been a principal for eighteen or eighteen plus years. Tell us how being a principal has changed over the years.
4: I think it's just become um, there There are a lot more expectations on principals and a lot more red tape as far as a lot more documentation that principals are required to support. As well as that, there's been a lot more community issues that have um, developed, especially in the last few years, of course, and we're all aware of those. Um, and... When you're in a school, you are often the real central point of contact for families and how all of this impacts on them. So there's a workload that comes with that. You're not just teaching children and supporting staff to teach children, you're also supporting families in in a myriad of different ways. Um, And the expectations of you to drive change in education around that are huge as well. Um, So, yeah, it's become a much more complex job. It's just not walking in the gate Uh, and worrying about your staff and being concerned with teaching and learning.
0: Okay, so many might not realise that. I certainly didn't realise that, Suzanne. I thought it was actually walking in the gate and you're looking after the day. You make sure everything runs smooth. But what the the picture you're painting is pressure piled upon pressure Ella.
2: Absolutely and I mean I know that the whole education sector from from preschool all the way to university has gone through some quite huge reforms in the last 30 years. So there's a lot more administrivia, there's a lot more compliance costs and whoever's at the helm has yeah. to be responsible for that. I mean you look at, a, my kids went to Avondale College which was like a village 3,000 kids, 1,000 staff a multi-million dollar operation so the principle of that is running multiple uh, different initiatives and activities and then you've got the principal in a small country town where he or she is the teacher the local community leader the principal, the secretary you know it's really I can see how incredibly complex and quite frankly I would hate I wouldn't put my hand up for it because it's too much like hard work. Suzanne?
4: <laughs> uh, yeah it, it, that's a very good um, summary I suppose and um, you know the difference between secondary and primary of course and I think that's what primary principles are really concerned about in this collective round is that The amount of middle management and senior management support that is available, because we're not just asking for better pay and conditions. Part of those conditions is additional leadership roles in our primary schools to enable us to actually do the visioning and support our staff in a better way. Um, You know, a few years ago in 2018, there was an independent Tomorrow Schools Task Force, and they looked at the difference between um, primary and secondary schools, and it 's quite marked in those areas of middle and senior management support and staffing of teaching um, with comparable sized schools. so parity between the sectors is has become a real issue again as well.
3: All right, yeah, Phil O'Reilly. Well, I should <clears throat> just declare something that my brother's actually a school principal in oh, Mount Roskill in Auckland. And he, as a result, I can speak fluent teach, uh, which is great. <laughs> uh, and well, What would he say? Well, interestingly, he says he will talk to me about the OECD statistics and, and a number of other international statistics, which say the number one influencer on a, on a child's success in school is the quality of the teaching. Okay, So the quality of the, how, how pedagogy gets done is the key to it. right? Class size, all the rest is actually much, much less... Uh, you know, digital, all that stuff is much, much less impactful than just the quality of the teacher. So he inspires me a lot about thinking about that. And also he inspires me a lot about his role as a principal because he's endlessly creative and and thinking about things. And so well, I think in terms of talking to the teaching profession more generally, we should have a much bigger conversation. Pay might be one thing, but we should have a much bigger conversation about saying, how do we actually really... Uh, get on with improving the quality of teaching uh, in, in, our, in our, uh, uh, our schools, which includes things like how do you gain entry to be a teacher? you know at the moment you have to have a degree, but it 's not necessarily a degree in teaching, for example. so how do you actually really build up the capability of teachers because I think if you do that and show that that 's actually making a difference in what an education system that 's actually pretty broken right now, then I think people will be much more interested in saying, well, let's, let's pay that properly. And I think that's somewhere where the where the distinction sometimes fits in or Phil, where it's a problem.
0: Phil there, Suzanne, bringing up the big issues, widening the lens, what are your thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, the research shows that the quality of teaching in the classroom is the biggest driver for student achievement. And the right. biggest driver is leadership in school. So our teachers need to be supported by leaders who are well supported to enable them to professionally develop, to have the time to work with children and not be working as social workers with whānau um, and those sorts of things. And principals are at the moment dealing with things like, you know, leading with teachers a curriculum restri- um, refresh. You know, we're, we are asked to deal with issues of attendance and engagement in schools. We're leading property projects in our schools. We're recruiting in a time... When experienced teachers, New Zealand teachers are difficult to recruit. Um, we've got new boards in place, so there's a lot of leadership and advice involved in that. We're managing school finances, and when we're constantly, those, those streams, those operational grants are not huge right. um, and as yeah. part of that professional learning of staff. So there's a whole range of things that leaders are involved in, to support their staff to actually be able to teach well in classrooms.
0: I know that we have talked, Ella, about great teachers before because we can all recall. But less so principals, I'd like to know, look, if, if you are a principal listening, get in touch. I'd love to hear from you on what your thoughts are. But no doubt that leadership one does strike chord, uh, Ella, because I, I, I do know that if you go into the a school and you feel the, feel the vibe, get the tenor, get the, get the spirit of the place, um, yeah. it, it often comes from the top, it does it not? I couldn't
2: agree more. I mean, the best department heads that I've ever worked with in, in my 30 years of working in universities, I think they're parallel, um, realised that their primary job was to acquire the resources to empower us to be the best we could be. And and I think that that's true of principles as well. Is But, but if they have been bogged down by administrivia, then they're not going to have that fabulous leadership role and capacity expanded.
0: Suzanne, we'll keep on top of this. We'll uh, check back in next year. But for now, have a great uh, Christmas. OK. Merry Christmas
4: to you all, too. That is no, no.
0: Suzanne Billington, there, Western Bayer Plenty Principals Association president. I want to just jump to this. Damien Barr, host of the big Scottish book club for BBC Scotland, tweeted the following Once again, my husband has come into the living room and turned on the big light, capital letters. And once again, I'm divorcing him quietly in my head and building a new lamp for life myself in Scandinavia. <laughs> What are your thoughts on this? Do we need floodlights in the bedroom? And he got a huge response. Um, Caroline says, Liking the big light is one of my more controversial takes. <laughs> Laurel says, I totally empathise with this. I'm I'm one big light switch from leaving my partner. The big light is only acceptable if you've dropped something small and there's a chance that it's blending in with the rug, and that is the only time. We've had a response too. I've always liked my Caravaggio lighting, Dibney Lit. Let's go around the panel. Um, Constant discussion at home, and it'll be like this tonight. Turn off the big light, please, darling. What's your take, Ella?
2: Uh, Okay, so I've got unfortunately an in the middle one. You know, I need the big light in the kitchen because I'm old and blind, and I want to make sure I put exactly the right amount of baking soda in the cake recipe. Okay, big light kitchen, big light bathroom. Got to put the makeup on. Little light bedroom. I mean, let's just make it the best light for the best use. Uh,
0: Okay, all right. So little light bedroom, but big light. Needless to say, the kitchen. But overall, Phil. I can imagine that you wouldn't even have a big light. It'll be lots of little lamps dotted around because mood is what
3: you'd need at the end of a very long day in business, right? Absolutely. I have candles because I'm secretly a devil worshipper. <laughs> I must be because I work for the business community.
0: I I wasn't. I wasn't inferring that, Phil. I wasn't inferring that. I was. What do you take me for?
3: Well, what would you like to be taken for? uh, For me, I'm not allowed any light in the bedroom. So, if I want to read my iPad and I've got even a bedroom light on, I get the cold foot in the back of my warm knee until I turn it off. So, actually, for me, it's not even a choice between big light and little light. It's no light at all and you know make your own way with the light from the ipad bad luck that's me
2: that's harsh it's, that's an, abusive,
3: it's an abusive relationship
0: there's your santa there's your 20 dollar santa gift phil that's we it. should have talked about it before when you're on last you know what it is what it's a little headlamp it is that's right
3: perfect love it i couldn't look okay. any more stupid yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: In bed, it's Saturday evening, and you've got the headlamp on. Exactly. All right. No. um, So, look, um, is it big light or little light for you? Text me 2101. And rounding out, uh, holiday break is looming after a brutal year. I've been asking our panellists what is one book that they can suggest for you. I don't want to burden you with book lists. There are so many book lists. I just want a a, a perfectly curated panellist of books. It's all I want. Just a few books, one each, please. Ella Henry.
2: Well, I'm at the moment working my way through uh, Poor People with Money by Dominic Hoey, and uh, I love it because it's it's street savvy. It's very New Zealand, Auckland centric. It's full of profanity because secretly I have a potty mouth, um, and it's about the sort of it's about real people and stress and trauma. But but it's all very very local, so I love reading local stories. Uh,
0: Dominic Harvey there, uh, and that uh, title again is "Poor People
3: with Money." All right, Phil. Uh, well, the book I would recommend to people is a thing called "Dead in the Water" by a guy called Matthew Campbell. What it's a story about at one level is, that is a oil tanker in in the Persian Gulf is attacked by pirates, apparently, uh, and and it, and if some people are kidnapped and so on. Uh, and it looks a little suspicious, so the insurance assessor comes out from from the coastline to have a look at the ship and so on, and starts to have some suspicions, and he he is then uh, murdered, uh, and and it's the story of what plays out, how Lloyd's of London. Uh, maybe doesn't want to think about that because they just want to pay the insurance and move on. And it's about how the how the, uh, this man's wife pushes things, and it's how some police officers start investigating. And it's a book about that particular thing, but it's also much more a book about uh, bringing to our attention the fact that it's actually quite hard to know who owns a ship, uh, and it's quite wow. hard to know who's liable. And And, of course, that's wow. important because— Virtually everything that we wear, everything that we use comes to us from a ship. Uh, and it's very unclear who owns them, who, how can we, they be insured, what happens when there's a problem, what happens with labor standards on board those ships. So it's a fantastic book about international shipping as well as a, as well as a great story about this particular uh, murder and uh, what turns out to be murder and and what, what happened as a result. And it's, well, a, it's, a good, it's a good end, I must say, well, a good end. So don't, I'm, I'm, don't, don't, don't. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah. Do, you know what, do you know what, Phil? What? It looked
0: so fascinating. I've requested it already from the library. Oh, perfect. But guess what?
2: Mm.
3: They are all out, all 15 copies. Oh, really? It is on fire, this book. Yeah, it's a fantastic. It's, it's an FT Book of the Year, so it's a, one of the financial oh, okay. books of the year. We we um, we buy them for our clients, as you as you may know from last time when I, we talked about Sandy Hook, that other great book. But we couldn't actually get copies of this one. I thought it was a fantastic read. So can't get it. Can't yeah, get it. Just really, um, it's
0: hard. it's it's on hold for me too. So I requested it. So uh, wonderful. All right, uh, is Poor People with Money by Dominic Hui, and Phil's uh, book is Dead in the Water by. Matthew Campbell. You're on the panel on RNZ National. It's time for headlines.